Hey, it's Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to K-Pop. Senator Joe Manchin is the Democrat everyone loves to think will switch parties. For me to be a Republican, I would have to put the bottom line before I would a human being. I can't do that. You can hear more of what the West Virginia senator has to say about his fellow Democrats, President Trump, Russian interference in the election, and the messy attempt to repeal Obamacare. Senator Manchin, thank you very much for being on the podcast. And from what I understand, this is your first My podcast. My first, Jonathan. It sure is, buddy. I'm glad it's with you. Well, I'm, I am honored to be your, your debut in the podcast right. world. So let's talk about healthcare. What on earth is happening with what's supposed to be the repeal and yeah. replace of Obamacare with something that doesn't sound like it's improving the situation? Well, I can understand the uh, high emotions that are running right now. If you were a Republican and you were working against the Obamacare from day one, if you've been here long enough from 2009, I wasn't here when it passed. I didn't get here to the end of 2010. It was already law by that time. So I can say that people have been, well, since I've been here, it's about 60 votes to repeal it. And I said, you know, I know there's going to be some adjustments we need to make. We all have talked about some tweaks uh, any major social change such as this, whether it be Social Security, Medicare, uh, they didn't happen the first shoot time out of the box. It took time to evolve. So I knew this would have to be repaired. But they never would put a repair up. It's repeal, repeal, repeal. And some of the repairs they put out would just cut, slash, and burn. But if you look back in 2009, I would say that I felt that the Democrats were wrong and pushing this legislation without trying to at least make every effort humanly possible to make it bipartisan. It's hard to have this major of a social change and not have a bipartisan buy-in. But isn't there an argument to be made that every effort was made and the Republicans at every turn said no? Well, that's, that's a good point to bring up. And everything that I have studied from what happened back then in about a year to develop the bill, there was buy-in. Everybody was putting amendments up. Republicans were putting as many amendments up as Democrats. So you would think they're working in a, in a most productive manner. The turn of events, as I'm told, you know, uh, Senator Kennedy was very ill and he passes away. So the Democrats could see at that time for this major change, they weren't, they worked for a year trying to get Republicans on board. It wasn't happening. Now, fast forward to today, the Republicans have the window open where they have the White House. So they know they won't be vetoed. They have both the House and the Senate. So what happens right now, the base is split. The base is not coalesced around, just throw it out completely. Let's go back to what we had before there was ever any Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, which was, if you recall, nothing. Right. Because what you had in West Virginia, at least I can speak for that, that if you never had insurance, which probably a quarter of a million people never did, you just use the emergency room. When you got deathly ill, very sick. So there was no preventive care. There was no basically a culture of how do I prevent myself from getting ill? How do I live a better, healthier wellness lifestyle? There wasn't any of that. They're telling us now, Jonathan, that wait a minute. We made a political promise. We got to repeal this thing. I said, wait a minute. You're going to repeal it with 51 votes. Not one Democrat's going to be voting to repeal. Not one. I mean, you have Bernie and me in the same caucus. <laughs> That's a pretty widespread. And with that being said, we have all come to the conclusion this is bad, bad, bad to get rid of it the way you're doing it. 
Let's try some things that give people incentives to go into preventive health style, to go into nutritional, go into exercising, go into making sure that they're moving and progressing, taking BMI, things of this sort. And, and if we start doing things that basically fosters more of a healthy lifestyle, you can have tremendous savings. That's low-hanging fruit. Throwing people off is not low-hanging fruit. That's destruction. So why don't Republicans, I mean, everything you just said is eminently reasonable. Yeah. Why don't why don't Republicans, specifically Speaker Ryan and President Trump, why, did, why don't they see it that way? Well, I don't know. Let me tell you, I talked to President Trump maybe four weeks ago, and I said, Mr. President, you've got to be careful. Don't let your Republican colleagues lead you down the primrose path. And I said, you know, this is the most divisive thing ever happened to our country that I've seen in a long time back in 2009. It split our country wide open. People either for or against. Keep your doctors, can't keep your doctor. Buy If you don't buy, I'm going to fine you. You know, mandates and all this and that and everything. And I had problems with it, but I was willing to work through that. But nobody's sitting down, I guess, because they feel that the hardcore base is just throw it out. Too much government they shouldn't be doing and shouldn't be involved at all. Well, I'm sorry they are involved because you're the same person who's going to go to that that emergency room when you really need help. And you don't care whether you can pay it or not, but they got to take care of you because of the federal involvement. Federal dollars are involved helping these hospitals stay open. So you are involved. We have a responsibility. So what are the chances, let's say, um, what they're talking about in the House passes and comes over here to the Senate? What are the chances that it'll pass? Well, they, they, they have not one Democrat so there's 48 Democrats, not one. They need 51 votes to pass it. They have 52 Republicans. What I'm hearing from an awful lot of Republicans from different spectrums of the base, if you will, that don't like it. You hear Rand Paul, Ted Cruz. Then you hear Rob Portman, even my colleague Shelley Capito from my home wants something a little different. So here's what I recommended to President Trump. I said, Mr. President, you're talking about repeal and replace. They're talking about repealing it now. That was when they were saying, repeal it now, it'll take us about two years to fix it. You remember that? Mm -hmm. That conversation. I said, sir, that's purely politics. They want to repeal it now, and they're going to tell you it takes two years to fix it. That gets them past the 2018 election. That's all they care about. They know how much pain this is going to be to a lot of people, and there'll be a lot of backlash. Who's going to blame you? And and I said, Mr. President, let me tell you, a quarter of a million people are more really benefited in my state, and I'd say 70% probably voted for you. They didn't know it was the Democrats. They didn't know it was Barack Obama presidency that gave them this expansion of health care they never had before. They really did not know. But they're definitely going to know who took it away from them. You can be sure of that. So I said, so, sir, don't vote to repeal it before you try to repair it. Well, then you heard him come right out and say, we're going to repeal and replace the same day. So you've mentioned a couple of times now that you've spoken to President Trump. Uh, the last time you said was about four weeks ago. Well, on this issue. On this, on this issue. Times, yeah. Oh, well, that's interesting. When was the last time you talked to the president? Uh, when I was at the White House, we did the whole thing on the minors. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did some, he did some uh, a CRA that gave us, which I've always felt the overreach of the, of the EPA was an overregulated thing, Jonathan. I, and I tell him, I said, just because you come from West Virginia or an extraction state like West Virginia, we're not going to do away with the Clean Water Act. We're not going to do away with the Clean Air Act. We don't want to drink dirty water, breathe dirty air. But we had so many regulations piled on top of one of another that we couldn't do anything. People couldn't work. The companies wouldn't basically invest. They couldn't go out and borrow the money. To f- it was a moving target. 
It just wasn't, it, nothing was good enough. So he re, repealed some of those. You know, and uh, when he did that, they had a big ceremony to, at the White House, mm-hmm. and I was there. And that might have been two or three weeks ago. Now, you, I mean, and then you, I saw him at the State of the Union. Right, at the, the joint session, the joint session address. Now, you, you, you really like President Trump. I get along with him. I mean, you, yeah. you, and he knows I voted for Hillary, right? Because Bill and Hillary are my friends. He appreciates loyalty, but they were my friends, and I believe in him. I believe that Hillary would have helped my state, even though very few people did, and she got beat worse than any candidate's ever gotten beat in my state. Yeah, she only got twenty six percent of the vote. And he got sixty, uh, almost sixty. The spread was forty well, something, close 40 to forty three points different. Right, forty two and a half points. So, so uh, with that being said, when we talked. You know, we have a respect and all that. But I was never against him. I was just for them because I knew they knew my state and would help me. Well, there's a quote you said that I found I found rather interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you remarked back in January or so, I've had more personal time with Trump in two months than I had with Obama in eight years. That's true. What was it about the relationship with President Obama that wasn't really a relationship at all. I don't know what happened, John. I really don't. I knew him when he was uh, at the convention for the states, when he was a state senator, gave his famous speech. In 2004. They kind of catapulted him up. I'd just been elected as a new governor. I was there too. And we talked a little bit there. Then he became a U.S. senator. I was the governor of West Virginia. He represents Illinois, had a big coal base. That's a big coal state. Mm -hmm. So we had a lot of things in common. Our offices worked very close together. Had a good relationship. Then he becomes a candidate and becomes a candidate of high stature and becomes president. Everything shuts down. I don't know whether he was uncomfortable then. Uh, when I was governor and he became president, I brought a, it took me a while to get a meeting. I brought a, about 10 senators, I mean 10 governors from energy-producing states, and we all had our concerns, and we spoke about them from the National Governors Association. And he was very defensive, and he got very mad when I said, Mr. President, you've done one heck of a good job. A villainizing call. Hmm. And he took exception. So I, I said, sir, I'm sorry. But everything you've done, because I knew we, we talked about this before when, you know, him representing it. So if there was an uncomfortable feeling there, I don't know. But we just had a hard time on that one. And we didn't seem to be able to get over that. On President Trump, he's said many times on the campaign trail, and even as president, that he's going to bring coal jobs back to coal country. How realistic is that? Well, I cautioned him on that. We talked about that right at first before he took, before he did his inauguration. I was talking to him and I said, Mr. President elect at that time, you better be careful on that statement. As much as I wish everything you're saying is 1000% true. We've lost a lot of the market in America. A lot of coal plants have shut down. The cheap gas has run the, the market itself ran a lot of our coal fired plants out of existence. The overreach of the regulation ran a lot of other ones out. So we had a lot of older plants were due to cycle out anyway. The cheap gas came on, and it was easier and cheaper for the utilities to convert to natural gas than to rebuild an old coal-fired plant. Well, let me ask you this. So you did interview with President mm-hmm. Trump yes, I did. about potentially being Secretary of Energy. Correct. Correct? You're a Democrat. Right. He's a Republican who ran a very controversial race uh, to become president. Um, To those Democrats out there who are wondering why on earth would he even consider 
being in that administration, what would you say to them? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm an American first. If a president of the United States, forget about their politics, forget about anything. I mean, they are now in the position of the most powerful country on earth, superpower, and a country that the rest of the world should look up to and look for leadership. And if you can be part and have some input in that, not to explore it and walk away and say, I'm sorry. So what I did is I said, I, I was honored to go and talk and to find out if there was value to that and if I thought I could bring value. And we went through, had a nice conversation. I met his family and this and that and everything, and we were talking. And when it really came down to it, I could tell that the way most of these, and you never know, but the way me being a Democrat, him being a Republican, having a Republican administration around him, uh, we talked about prospects of a job. And I said, if the job would be offered, and if I would consider accepting it, I would want to put my own team together. I says, I'm a little bit too old to be taking orders from a young person in the White <laughs> House telling me how to run my agency. I've been a governor, and I put my team together, and I was held responsible for the results. I'm a U.S. senator. I have an office here. I'm responsible for how this office performs. And let me put my team together, and I'll be responsible for the job you want me to do. And I he said, he didn't say anything. Ryan's prepus at that time, in a very jokingly or a very jovial way, said, well, Joe, we'll have to negotiate that. At that time, I've been around long enough to say, Ryan, I know exactly what you mean. Well, I knew right then it wasn't going to work. Okay. And maybe it would never been offered. We never went any further than that. Mm -hmm. We both walked away from the meeting that I could be. I want him to do well. I said, I'm going to be an honest broker. When I disagree, I'm going to disagree respectfully. If I disagree, I'm going to disagree with what I think would be solving the problem I disagree on with your decision. And that's what I've tried to do. I try to do that with Barack Obama. I've tried to do that now with President Trump. You said earlier um, you are at the right end of the spectrum in the Democratic, under the big tent of the Democratic Party, to the point where some people wonder why is he still a Democrat? And there's always speculation that sure. you are going to switch parties any any minute. Why yeah. are you still a Democrat? And why not switch parties in a state? You represent a state that swung hard for President Trump in the I, last election. I guess, you know, we all say we're a product of our environment. So you got to know, I was raised in a little town, less than 500 people, a little coal mining town called Farmington. I can honestly say growing up, I didn't know anybody that said they were Republican. Everyone I knew was a Democrat. So I watched the, some of the, my idols in life, my parents, my grandparents, my little league coach, my Boy Scout leader, and these were all wonderful people that would help anybody. So maybe I, that's, I'm sure that's somewhere in my mind that my grandmother took everybody in. She'd feed them if they, needed, if they were hungry. Is that Mama K? Mama K. Yeah. She kept them if they needed a place to stay. If a young unwed mother got thrown out of the house because she was pregnant. Mama Kay took him in. So I watched the whole evolution of life in that little coal mining town. But again, everybody was a Democrat. John Kennedy comes in, and I see my family all excited because, you know, he had to break down the religious the religion barrier. We were a Catholic family, which is a minority in the state of West Virginia. And they were excited, and I saw all the good that he did and the excitement he brought. My uncle was very much involved in my family. My dad was mayor, and everybody... It gave something back. I also saw the Democrats of that era. If you were a, a slacker, they would call them, you know, a bum or a slacker, uh, you better not hang around in Farmington. They'd run you out of town. <laughs> you better work if you were capable. Now, if for God forbid that you were ill 
or had some type of, of handicap, they take care of you. I mean, like anything I've ever seen. So I see all that. Then I see, as we went through the political process, for me to be a Republican, I would have to put the bottom line before I would a human being. In my mind, might not be a fair evaluation. I can't do that. Uh, I'd have to look at, okay, would it improve a person's life? Would it give them a chance? Give them hope to be something. And if I'm going to make a mistake, I'm going to make a mistake trying to help you rather than preventing you from doing something because I think you'll abuse it. But also I'm going to expect something too because I was raised in a family, that, in a town, in a community that had rules. My grandmother had rules. She'd take you in. You could stay with her and she'd feed you. She had three rules. You couldn't cuss, couldn't drink, and you had to work. Pretty simple. Times have changed. I know that. But I think the Democratic Party, I always knew that the Democratic Party would help a working person. So now you're in the leadership, mm-hmm. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, who put you in charge of messaging inside the party to get, um, I guess, the from the Bernie Sanders wing of the party on down to see and hear the folks within the Democratic Party who abandoned Hillary Clinton yeah. and voted for Donald Trump. What kind of message do those voters need to hear that they're not hearing right now from the First Democratic of all, I give Party. Chuck Schumer so much credit for understanding that, you know, we have to look at ourselves a little bit harder than we have in the past. We have to critique ourselves a little bit more sharper than we have. So if you can't win in the red states that used to be blue, something's wrong. You're never going to be in a majority again. If we continue to lose what we're losing in the amount of seats that we've lost in the last six to eight years, Jonathan is unbelievable. And from the state house down to the courthouse, it's just been unbelievable. So I think the best way to put it, my little state of West Virginia, what do the people feel? They feel like they're the returning Vietnam veteran. They did everything their country asked them to do. And then the country turned their back on them. So the heavy lifting, the mining, manufacturing, all the jobs that we used to have. And no one had any empathy. No one said, okay, listen, we're going to help make things work. We have some other ways of changing our tax laws, tax credits that will have bring some more investments in. Nothing. Then on top of that, the Democratic Party. And I've asked people. I grew up with people just like me. that They said, Joe, I don't want to tell you this, but I've got to. I voted Republican. voted for Donald Trump. I said, how? Why? And I think the best explanation is what most of them told me. They said, you know, we all grew up together, so you know how we feel. And we always knew that Democrats would always take care of the working person. They'd always help somebody. They'd give someone a fighting chance to survive. Now, the party that we knew that was always helping the working person is now the party, as we see it from Washington, that's preventing working people from working because they they become so politically correct. Whether it be the environment, whether it be social issues, what bathroom I use, what I do in my bedroom, everything, they're going to tell me how to do it. I can figure that out, they said. And that's just, but when you look at our state, our preamble is Montani Semper Libera. Mountaineers are always free. So they have that kind of a freedom spirit. They just feel like that we've lost touch. You, know, you um, in this Monster Politico magazine piece that's, um, that, is, that is he out knows. now. He knows. Michael knew more about me than I know. <laughs> Spent more time with him. Um, you said, a Democrat that adheres to the Washington Democrat philosophy can't win. 
What's not, the not in West Virginia? I don't well, not, right, right. Okay. And the rest of the quote is not in West Virginia, not in 2018. I can tell you that. What is the Washington Democrat philosophy? The Washington Democrat philosophy has become an overreaching philosophy. Basically, I know they, I know their intent is good and honorable, but it's it's become almost to the point where this it's so correct. Everything has to be so politically correct, and if you err, you're going to err on the side of just more government. Is really what they believe. So with that being said, they're going to say, wait a minute, I'm going to vote for the person. So I've got to identify. I'm still the same Joe Manchin that I have been all my life. 35 years I've been in public service. I haven't changed. You all know me in my state. Just about a million eight hundred thousand people I know by name or know a family member or know somebody that knows somebody. So I've been around a long time. I said, you know pretty much what I am. I'm fiscally responsible and socially compassionate. I've always been that way. I'm not going to promise you something I can't pay for. Because we always had to live within our means. We never had the luxury of having just throwing caution to the wind and spending X amount of dollars on things we couldn't afford. Never had that luxury. There's a lot of things I couldn't do. So always, but my values, my values were around, you know, I said, my priority will be around my values of who we are. So we did that well, Jonathan. We got to the point to where people have now said, why don't you change? Because your philosophy, I said, mine, mine hasn't changed. My brand is still the same. But think about this. The only reason for me to change is for me to get elected easier. It's the only reason. No other reason for me to change politics, except it would be an easier pathway for me because I don't want to fight within my own Democratic Party because I think that I'm an outlier, okay, basically to my party. But I still have a voice. I can still speak up. So let me just tell you how we think. Let me tell you how West Virginia, let me tell you how a red state Democrat who you forced to be a Republican, or you're forced to be an independent, or they're a closet Democrat because they're afraid to speak up. Let me tell you what they're thinking. So I said, if I changed, I'm changing strictly for my personal politics, not for public policy. And if I change my party, don't you think I'll change my brand too? I won't be the person I was. I just can't do it. Let me push back on something you said about um, folks being tired of the party being politi- politically correct because there are people within the Democratic Party Overly politically who correct. who view who don't view political correctness as a pejorative but it's synonymous with treating everyone with respect and dignity. We're okay with that. But in terms of something you said earlier about you know they're, they're telling us which bathrooms to use just leave me alone. But what do you say to That's, like in the state of in the state of Virginia with the the transgender boy who just wants to be left alone and be able be. to he should be able to. And let me so tell you, shouldn't that, should, the only thing I've said and I've talked to some of the educators in the state of West Virginia, and they said Joe really we understand we know our population base here in our school you can go to any school. And I said, how do you handle it? If we have a sensitive situation such as that, we have bathrooms basically for staff. We make sure that child has access to whatever he or she or how they identify. We're not going to put them in an uncomfortable situation. We're not going to put them in an embarrassing situation. But maybe it's different in our state. I don't know. But they're saying we can figure this one out. So the states, the folks in the states and at home, in your home state, they want to be able to figure it out without having Washington tell them this is yeah, how you must address this They've been figuring out for quite some time. This is not new. We act like it's a new phenomenon. And all of a sudden we've become so insensitive. We've been working on these very, these very delicate, sensitive issues for a long time. And they've been able to, to navigate this. 
I'm sure there's going to be some wrongdoings or mistakes made. But all in all, they're saying to me, we can, we can do this. We've been doing it. I'm not going to put a child, a transgender child, in a situation that's harmful, that's degrading or embarrassing. I'm not going to do it. Well, let's talk about another sensitive situation, a complete total subject change here, but Russia and the Trump administration. <laughs> and Well, yeah, but it is a sensitive situation because right. what we have is a foreign power mm-hmm. that we know interfered in some way in our in our election. And we have a president of the United States who in statements and in certain actions has done things that are compliment said things that are complimentary to the Russian president, Vladimir Putin. I, I, you're, you're a senator. You're up here. I'm on intelligence I, committee, Jonathan. So we're going through it line by line, word by word. We're going to find out. And first of all, what we do know and what's not uh, and what you know and the public knows now that's not classified, is that the Russians made more attempts than ever before to be involved in our election process. We know that. That's a fact. We also know that it didn't succeed, that it didn't change the outcome. So Mm -hmm. the, the election wasn't swayed one way or the other by their involvement. What we don't know, we know their intent was to do it. What we don't know is how much they've learned and how much capabilities they have to do it if they really wanted to. Mm-hmm. And did they go the extra mile? Did they learn enough from this exercise right now that they feel confident they can go in any democracy in the world, whether it's in Germany now against Angela Merkel, France, wherever it may be, to disrupt this process? And we can't let that happen because the rest of the world is depending on us. If we can't protect ourselves, how can we protect our allies? Are you not concerned that the president is beholden to Russia in That's some, what we're going in to find some way? Out. Election is one thing. Okay. That's one path of the investigation. The other path is what involvement? Does President Trump have personally, financially, or associates, or family ties? Is there anything? Okay. And we will find out. That will be unveiled. We will know. And intelligence committee, we're able to get the documents. We're able to get the intelligence reports. We're able to scour the whole, uh, the, the whole of it, and there's so much to do that we will find out at the end. If there's any dots that connect, if there's someone within his previous campaign, his associates, business associates, or he personally, that would be holding, be beholding to Russia, I believe the intelligence committee that we have in the Senate, at the end of the day, that intelligence committee will vote for their country before they will to protect any human being. I'm sorry, I, I smell smoke, but you're on the Intelligence Committee. I mean, is there smoke here? We, there's a lot of smoke. What you're looking for is the fire. <laughs> and we know there's well, smoke. You're the, well, you're on the Intelligence Committee, so the, you're the we're fireman. We're looking for the fire, okay? And how do you put the fire out if you find the fire? That's, what, that's the big question. What do you do? And we will do what's necessary to protect this country, the Constitution, the United States of America. I assure you of that. We're not, there's no witch hunt out there. The intelligence committee will take you to the facts. The facts should take you to the truth, and the truth will let you make the decision you have to make. It's not going to be a Benghazi witch hunt, which truly was a witch hunt. You miss being a governor? Oh, absolutely, every day. <laughs> On that note, we'll leave it there. Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, thank you very much. Thank you, Jonathan. It's good to be with you.
Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. You know what? Do me a favor. Subscribe and then rate and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. 